Let us turn in God's Word this morning to Psalm 61 and Psalm 62. read these two psalms in connection with the second question and answer of the head of our catechism, Lord's Day 13, which treats the subject of Jesus Christ as Lord, who's the ruler over all things. So as we read through these two psalms, look for evidence of the power of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Psalm 61, to the chief musician upon Nejana, a psalm of David. Hear my cry, O God, attend unto my prayer. From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For thou hast been a shelter for me, and a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. I will trust in the covert of thy wings, Selah. For thou, O God, hast heard my vows. Thou hast given me the heritage of those that fear thy name. Thou wilt prolong the king's life and his years as many generations. He shall abide before God forever, will prepare mercy and truth which may preserve him. So will I sing praise unto thy name forever, that I may daily perform my vows. And then Psalm 62, entitled to the chief musician, to Jedithan, a psalm of David. Truly my soul waiteth upon God, from him cometh my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense, I shall not be greatly moved. How long will ye imagine mischief against a man? Ye shall be slain, all of you, as a bowing wall shall ye be and as a tottering fence. They only consult to cast him down from his excellency. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. Selah. My soul, wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from him. He only He is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in Him at all times, ye people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Surely men of low degree are vanity, And men of high degree are a lie. To be laid in the balance, they are altogether lighter than vanity. Trust not in oppression, and become not vain in robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. God has spoken once, twice have I heard this, that power belongeth unto God. 
Also unto Thee, O Lord, belongeth mercy, for Thou renderest to every man according to his work. Thus far we read God's holy and an errant word. May God add His blessing upon the reading of His holy Scriptures. It's on the basis of these psalms and many other passages in God's Word that we find the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 13, the second question and answer, number 34. Last week we focused on question and answer 33 about Jesus as the only begotten Son of God, who alone is the eternal and natural Son, whereas we are children adopted of God. This week we focus on the second question and answer, number 34. Wherefore callest thou Him our Lord? The answer, because He hath redeemed us, both soul and body, from all our sins, not with gold or silver, but with His precious blood, and hath delivered us from all the power of the devil, and thus hath made us His own property. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is at this time of year as we come up on the celebration of Christmas and New Year's, a time which is for many of us a time of excitement and enthusiasm and rejoicing but a time which for many others can be a season of great sorrow and great heaviness of heart. And there are various factors that can contribute to those feelings of gloom and even despair at this time of year, the shorter days, the long dark nights, colder weather, all of that can factor in. But it is especially, is it not, the contemplation of what we do not have that can lead one to become despondent at this time of year. It's the single person. As the single person thinks about going through yet another holiday season without a spouse, not having a loved one, and it seems like everybody else has a loved one by their side, But then as the single person contemplates that they do not have a husband or a wife, that then they can become despondent. It's the thoughts that the childless couple has at this time of year. 
as they are again struck by the fact that under the Christmas tree there are no presents for their own children, which gives them grief of heart. It is the struggles that widows and widowers can have at especially this time of year as they would be willing to give up anything to have just one more Christmas with their loved one. It's the thought of what we do not have that can lead us to become overwhelmed. Psalm 61, verse 2, From the end of the earth will I cry unto Thee. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. May God so do that this morning, leading us as a congregation to the rock the unchanging, immovable, all-powerful rock that is higher than us. This sermon is not just for singles and childless couples and widows and widowers, but this sermon is for all of us. For to be human is to have feelings. And one of the most commonly experienced feelings that we have is the feeling of discouragement. So may God the Holy Spirit this morning lead us to contemplate the Lordship of our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. May He take our eyes off of what we do not have and lead us to see what we do have in Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus, our Lord. We'll see this to be true throughout all of history gone by yesterday. We'll see this to be true in the present moment today. And we'll see this to be true as we anticipate the future tomorrow. Jesus Christ has been throughout all of history Lord of creation. Wherefore callest thou Him our Lord? That He is Lord of creation means that Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, who was born of a woman, who came and dwelt among us in human flesh, that He is Master or ruler. That's the basic idea of lordship. The name Lord, similar to the name Christ, is a title that's given unto our mediator. This is not his personal name. It's not what the closest friends and family members of the mediator would have called him. They would have called him Jesus, his personal name. But Lord is a title, a title of honor 
that was bestowed upon him, indicating the fact that he was both the sovereign owner of all things and the fact that he was sovereign in executing the Father's will. That is, he not only is the one who created the heavens and the earth, but he also, as Lord, is the one who sets the direction of the heavens and the earth and executes perfectly the Father's will in the heavens and in the earth. The Lordship of Jesus Christ has been revealed throughout all of creation and throughout all of the pages of history. They declare unto us that Jesus is the sovereign owner of all things. John 1 verse 3, all things were made by him, speaking of the word, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He is the one who, according to Romans 4 verse 17, called the things which be not as though they were. Not just in the act of creation, though, was Jesus Christ Lord, but in all of the subsequent history was Jesus Christ Lord. When, prior to the flood, every imagination of man's thoughts was only evil continually, Jesus was Lord. When Joseph was sold off as a slave down into Egypt, he was Lord. When the patriarch Jacob of the covenant family decided to move down into Egypt, when they remained down there for 400 years, when they later on were oppressed by a pharaoh that knew not Joseph, And when the ten plagues came upon Egypt, and later God led them out through the Red Sea, Jesus Christ was Lord. Throughout all of history gone by, He's the sovereign ruler. But what then do we make of sin? What about man's rebellion against Jesus Christ as Lord? Did the rebellion in the garden of which we were a part change Jesus' lordship over us? Did we dethrone Jesus Christ, declare unto Him that He is not our Lord? Did we displace Him as King and find somebody else to be King instead of Jesus Christ? Did it become the case that at the fall into sin that Jesus Christ no longer had the sole right to rule this earth. You understand the seriousness of sin. That when we with Adam partook of that fruit, 
we became servants of sin. We submitted ourselves to the prince of darkness instead of to the rule of Jesus Christ. We became slaves to sin. All we could think about was sin, and we delighted in sin. And instead of delighting in God as the highest good, we delighted in the ways of darkness as if the ways of rebellion against God could give us that satisfaction and that happiness that we yearn for. So is it the case then at the fall into sin that the authority of Jesus Christ was usurped and replaced by the devil? This would create a very serious problem indeed if it were the case that the lordship of Jesus Christ was either diminished or ended at the time of the fall into sin. If it's the case that Jesus Christ ceased to be Lord at the time of the original sin, then you and I would have no comfort as we face that enemy of sin in our own lives. Then we would have reason for concern that perhaps in the end, evil will prevail. Perhaps wickedness is going to spread and spread, not just out in the world, but even in the church, and even in our own hearts. And perhaps there's the possibility that in the end, the devil and and darkness and sin is going to pervade the face of the whole earth. You see the seriousness. If Jesus Christ is not Lord over the fallen to sin, we have no comfort then. But the Word of God makes clear that Jesus Christ was sovereign even over sin, even the sin committed in the garden. God is the God of glory. And God will give His glory unto none other. God had determined that mankind would fall into sin. And Jesus Christ, God's Son, was sovereign over that fall into sin. The Belgic Confession, we confess that He orders and executes His work in the most excellent manner even when devils and wicked men act unjustly. Even the fact that we fell into sin, that we became slaves of sin, that we became dead in our sins and in our trespasses, yet that did not change the fact that Jesus Christ was and is Lord. God had determined that His people would fall into sin, that they would be unable to deliver themselves, 
that God then would send His Son, the Lord, into this world, that His Son would then redeem His people and bring His people to a higher state of glory than what would ever have been possible had mankind remained in the Garden of Eden. Was Jesus Christ sovereign over that sin in the Garden? Was He in control over that sin so that it did not happen by chance or by accident? Yes. Jesus Christ controlled that event. He did so so that as Lord, He could come into this world and redeem us. That's the language of the catechism. Why do you call Him Lord? Because He hath redeemed us. Redeem is to purchase someone or something. He bought us. He bought us not with gold or with silver, but He bought us with His own precious blood. And note well with me to whom that payment was made. He bought us as a transaction that happened there at the cross. Jesus is making a payment. The form of money, as it were, the currency, is His own blood. But now, to whom is Jesus Christ making this payment. It is not to the devil. Jesus did not on the cross give to the devil His own blood, His own righteousness, so that then the devil would in turn give to Jesus us, His people. If Jesus Christ had upon the cross made a payment to the devil, had paid the devil, then that would be, would it not, an acknowledgement that the devil was Lord over us. But he didn't pay the devil. Whom did Jesus pay? Did He not pay His Father in heaven? As Jesus Christ died on the cross, Jesus Christ was giving to His own Father His life. Why? To satisfy the demands, the justice, the holiness of His own Father. We always belonged unto the Father. He had elected us, chosen us from eternity. Then in sin we rebelled against Him. And according to the righteousness and the holiness and the justice of our Father, He demanded that satisfaction be made for the sins which we committed against Him. 
And Jesus Christ, and in that death on the cross, made that satisfaction for sins that we committed against the Father. And so, Jesus Christ, and in making that payment unto the Father, was not paying the devil, but He was crushing the devil. Destroying any claim that the devil would have made upon us to be His property. And because Jesus Christ was paying the Father, and because Jesus Christ is one with the Father, wonder of all wonders, Jesus Christ was paying Himself on the cross. There we see that Jesus Christ is Lord. The sovereign owner and ruler of all things who determined His own condescension, humiliation, and death on the cross so that He could pay Himself for the sins of His own people. We do well to reflect upon this fact as we look back on sins and circumstances of the past that Jesus Christ is Lord even over sin. This does not mean that we are excusing our own sinfulness. We are not here minimizing our responsibility for the deeds of unrighteousness which we have performed. Nor are we in pointing to the sovereignty of Jesus Christ over the sins of this earth seeking to minimize the hurt, the real hurt that is endured when others sin against you. But yet, we still do look to the fact that Jesus Christ is sovereign over sin. And we find comfort in that. I believe there are two ways in which we are comforted in being reminded of the fact that Jesus Christ throughout history has been sovereign over sin. The first way in which we are comforted by this fact is by being reminded of the truth that Jesus Christ as Lord restrains or limits the development of sin and wickedness on this earth so that it is possible for the church of Jesus Christ to be able to meet and to gather and assemble themselves together and to grow in the grace and knowledge of God. Psalm 61. We see this truth. Psalm 61, verse 3. For Thou hast been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. 
Notice the past tense here as the psalmist looks back and what God had done for him, he, he reflects and says, For thou hast been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. There are many evils upon this earth which, if the Lord would permit these evils to come to us, they would easily have overwhelmed us. There are countless attacks or darts of the devil which God shields protects us from them so that they never even manage to come into our lives. For many of these, we are unaware even of their presence. God has His guardian angels invisible to our eyes, which angels protect and shield the church from a great number of attacks from the devil. And so that in the first place comforts us as we reflect on the sovereignty of Jesus over sin, that a great number of attacks He does not even permit to come to us. But the second way in which we are comforted by this is by reminding ourselves that the attacks of the devil that do come to us are used for our profit. We confess in the baptism form that God averts all evil or turns it to our profit. We sing, and the psalter affliction hath been for my profit. And I to thy statutes might hold. The Apostle Paul confesses in Romans chapter 5 that tribulations work in us. Patience and hope and experience. God uses, does He not, the evils that come into our lives to strengthen us. Does one want spiritual strength? Does one want spiritual stamina? Here's how God gives strength. By sending Trials, hardships into our lives in which we are tempted. And then God gives the grace to resist. And that leads us to see what God does for us today. He strengthens us today that we might be able to resist the temptations of the devil question, or rather answer 34, the second half, Jesus Christ hath delivered us from all the power of the devil. This He does as our Lord. Delivers us from the power of the devil. But before we look at the fact that He does deliver us from the power of the devil, we acknowledge that the devil does have 
a measure of power. Indeed, a great measure of power. It would be foolish of us not to acknowledge that the devil has great power. The devil was originally created by God as an angel. He was a ministering spirit who was sent forth from God on high in order to accomplish the will, the purpose of God. He was Lucifer. He was a ruling angel, a prince even of the angelic realm. So there was an extra measure of authority and power that God had given unto Lucifer prior to his fall into sin. But then we see that then once the devil fell into sin, and we we do not know exactly when the devil would have fallen or did fall into sin, but at some point he did fall into sin, and then he, he, he retained that power that was given unto him. But instead of using that power in the service of Jehovah God, the devil then perverted that power and used that power for his own wicked ambitions. And so we see the power of the devil in the garden as the devil came to Adam and Eve and took that which was evil and convinced Adam and Eve that that evil was good. The the power of the devil always has been this. It's the power of deception. He's a liar. And the father of all lies. The power of the devil is this. He takes the Word of God and he would have us believe that the Word of God is not trustworthy. That's what he did to Adam and Eve in the beginning. But did God really say unto you that you cannot eat of this tree, he got Adam and Eve to second guess. To think again, well, well, did God really say that? The tactics of the devil throughout history have not changed. The devil still is a liar. And the devil will use whatever is at his disposal to convince anyone that God's Word cannot be trusted. Do you have great difficulties in your life? Trials which feel as if nobody else can understand or relate to? Do you have loneliness, grief, even at this time of year? as you reflect on the joy of prior years, the devil would use that to enter into the heart of man and have man think God's Word cannot be trusted. Yes, I know God's Word says that He's good, And that He cares for us. And that we can dwell under the covert, the shelter 
of His wings, but that's not true for me. That hasn't been what happened in my life. And then the devil would have us turn inward and put more confidence in our subjective feelings than in the unchanging, objective truths of God's Word. And little by little, the devil would lead us away from Jesus Christ, who is the rock. We depend upon power greater than our own to deliver us from this devil. The Catechism teaches us that our comfort is that our Lord Jesus Christ hath delivered us from all the power of the devil. It's put in the past tense here. He hath delivered us and yet it has implications for the present moment today. He hath delivered us. He did that at the cross where the payment for our sins was made. The power by which we are delivered from our sins is the power of justification. It is as God the Father declares within our conscience that we are His and that we are holy in His sight. That all of our sins have been covered with the blood of the Lamb. That we are given the power by which we are delivered from our sins. And being legally then delivered from our sins, God works in us what we call sanctification. God works in us holiness so that we are transformed more and more into the image of God's only begotten Son. Constantly, the Christian must be reminding himself of this truth, running this truth through his mind again and again. God hath delivered me from all the power of the devil. We have to remind ourselves of that again and again because we are so very forgetful. All it takes is one temptation to rise up in our lives again and immediately that temptation appeals to our flesh and immediately we want to revert back to ways that we know we ought not to go and we feel that our flesh is so very weak and that we're going to give in to this temptation and at that moment we must be reminded that Jesus Christ who is our Lord hath Delivered us from not some, but all the power of the devil. You will look in vain for help from anyone else to give you the strength to resist temptations. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 62 shows unto us 
the difference between the help that comes from God and the help that man presents to us. Psalm 62, verse 8. Trust in Him at all times, ye people. Pour out your heart before Him. Why? God is a refuge for us. He's a shelter for us. There's God's power. Now go to the next verse and see the impotence, the weakness of man. Surely men of low degree are vanity, and men of high degree are a lie. To be laid in the balance, they are altogether lighter than vanity. Trust not in oppression and become not vain in robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. A striking figure that the Bible gives us here is it makes use of a picture of one of the scales that would have been used in Bible times. Imagine a straight line, a solid line going across, supported over a pendulum right in the middle. The Bible says if you take all the men of the earth, high men and low men, men of high degree and men of low degree, important men and the lowliest men, and put them in one side of this scale, they are altogether lighter than vanity. That's how empty the help of man is. In comparison is the power of God through Jesus Christ. Verse 10, God has spoken once, twice, Have I heard this, that power or strength belongeth unto God? It's because we forget that power belongs unto God that He says it unto us and then He repeats it. He says it twice. That power is His. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above what ye are able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Today, Jesus is Lord. And as we look to the future, Jesus always will be Lord. He will be because, according to the Catechism, He hath made us His own property. The end of answer 34, and thus Jesus hath made us His own property. You know, at first when we read these words, it seems almost impersonal. Property. Jesus hath made us His property. To use that language seems to be taken a step back in time a couple of centuries ago. It's as if you're in the deep south 
on a plantation farm. And there the farmer takes you around and he shows you the quarters where his slaves live at. And he yanks on the chains wrapped around their legs. He says, this is my property. These men go out and work the fields for me. It seems so cold, so impersonal, so unloving to speak in terms of us being the property of someone else. We must understand here that when the Catechism speaks of us being the property of Jesus Christ, it does so, beloved, with with this understanding that Jesus Christ made us His property in an act of love. Love is the governing principle that controls the fact that we are the property of Jesus Christ. If there is a chain that is wrapped around us and that ties us unto Jesus Christ, that chain is the chain of love. Love is what unites Jesus Christ unto us. And it's not because we love Jesus Christ that we went unto Him and said, yes, I will gladly be your property. No, it's because Jesus Christ bound Himself unto us. That Jesus Christ from eternity in an act of love decided, I will be the Savior of these people. I will be their servant. I will come into this world and give up my life at Calvary in order to make these people be my property. Understanding then that it is an act of love by which we are made the property of Jesus Christ, this gives unto us confidence and trust in Him as we look to the future. What does one do with land that is their personal property? Take care of it. You have a vested interest in it. Especially in today's world, if one can afford to buy property, that costs you a lot to get that property. So because you spent so much to get that property, you don't neglect the property. You don't abuse the property. But you care for the property. You invest time and energy in that property. You make plans so that the value of the property can increase and become more and more meaningful and valuable to you. And so it is for Jesus Christ. It's not as if He purchased us with His blood, made us His property, and then lets us go. No, He has a vested interest in you. He works in you so that you become more and more valuable, precious to Him. He transforms you. 
so that more and more you resemble Him in righteousness, holiness, and knowledge of God. Our confidence looking forward is the confidence of the psalmist in Psalm 61, verse 4. I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. I will trust in the covert of thy wings. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God in heaven, we thank thee for thy word, a word which convicts us of our sinfulness, where we have failed to respect Thy authority over us. A Word which brings us to the foot of the cross, where we behold our Savior. And a Word which fills our hearts with hope for the future, knowing that Thou dost hold tomorrow in Thy hands, and that Thou wilt guide us by Thy counsel all the days of our lives, until at last Thou dost bring us into the glory that awaits. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.